3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Carly. Good morning, Priya. <laughs> Good morning. to Thursday breakfast. Well, <laughs> did that the wrong way around. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good morning. It is the 19th of November. Whoa. Oh my gosh. And it is 7.01 a.m. It is a beautiful, beautiful day. Going to be a sweaty one. Um, Yeah, how are you both doing today? I'm excited. We've got a packed show. So packed. Yeah. So packed. Five interviews back to back. Yeah. Should we just jump into the rundown? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. So, first up, you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Karen Wilde, and Karen is currently based in South Australia, but her grandmother's country, Matu, is located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia, and Karen joins us on the show to talk about her newly published book, Where the Fruit Falls. After that, I'll speak to Libby Porter from Save Public Housing Collective. Professor Libby Porter is at the Center for Urban Research at RMIT University and is the convener for the Darabin Community Friends of Public Housing, which is a member of the Save Public Housing Collective. And we're going to discuss the Andrews government's recent announcement of investment in social housing and what this actually means. And then Adolf Mora will join us, um, and he's a human rights defender. And he will speak more about the situation in West Papua. Uh, Adolf came here by boat in 2006 and has been detained in Christmas Island for a bit and then granted temporary protection and came to Nam since to continue the campaign for his people's struggle under Indonesian colonialism. And then we're going to be speaking with Fiona Foley. And Dr Fiona Foley is from the Wandana clan of the Butchula Nation. And she's completed her fourth film, titled Out of the Sea Like Cloud, in 2019. And her recent exhibitions include a 25-year photographic retrospective, titled Who Are These Strangers and Where Are They Going? Dr Fiona Foley is currently a lecturer at the Queensland College of Art, Griffith University. And she joins us, joins us on the show to speak about her new book, Biting the Clouds, A Butchula Perspective on the Aboriginal's Protection and Restriction of Sale of Opium Act, 1897. And last Friday marked an end to the 29-year-old ceasefire between Morocco and the Polisario Front, the Western Sahara Independence Movement, after the Moroccan military opened fire on a blockade halting civic and commercial flux on the only road connecting West Africa to Western Sahara, Morocco and Europe. So joining us will be Kamal Fadel, who serves as the representative for the Polisario in Australia and New Zealand. And I think really relevant uh, to those interviews with Kamal and Adolf is uh, today you may be aware that the Brereton Report is going to be released. Uh, I believe a press conference is going to be held at around 9 a.m., but I would say keep an eye on the news. Um, you know, this is an investigation into the uh, Australian Defence Forces, Special Forces, war crimes in Afghanistan. Um, there's going to be some really important information there, and, you know, 
if you are distressed by any of the information that you hear, um, I would say call Lifeline or Beyond Blue. Do we have those numbers? We'll just have a look for them and get them up for you. But, yeah, I'd say... um, it's a really important thing to be aware of. You would have seen bits of news coming out in bits and pieces um, about, you know, horrific war crimes that have happened, and we're really hoping that there will be some consequences out of this. Um, and you'll hear some more from Adolf, I'm sure, about the relationship that the Australian uh, Defence Force has with, you know, training um, training Indonesian police uh, to, you know, engage in human rights violations overseas. Um, Carly? Uh, so the numbers um, for Lifeline are 131114 and for Beyond Blue, 1300 Thank you. All right, and now we'll go to the news. With myself this morning. <laughs> so the planned cut to welfare recipients on New Year's Day will plunge 190,000 Australians, including 50,000 children below the official poverty line according to new modelling. New research by the Australia Institute suggests the Morrison government's decision to reduce the rate by $100 will push an additional 190,000 Australians below the poverty line and have a devastating impact on low-income families. For Victoria alone, 52,000 more people will be in poverty, including 16,000 children, the report found. The cuts to the COVID-19 supplement for JobSeeker have been criticised amid job data showing there are 10 people out of work for every vacant position in the market. Last week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Social Services Minister Anne Rustin announced the supplement would be extended to March, but at the further reduced rate of $150 a fortnight. The reduction means the total job seeker payment for a single person will be reduced to $357.50 a week. That's far below the national poverty line, as defined by the Australian Council of Social Service of $457 a week. And Australia's climate record has been labelled simply embarrassing, as it is revealed we are the worst among G20 nations at combating the crisis. Australia is one of only two countries in the G20 not implementing or planning any sort of carbon price scheme, and one of only four without a national policy to increase renewable energy, a new report has found. The Climate Transparency Report also found we were the worst G20 country in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. The report was released this week before weekend's virtual G20 summit and shows that Australia ranked in the bottom bracket in every climate policy area, considered except one. The Morrison government was found to have no national policies to expand renewable energy, phase out coal, phase out fossil fuel cars, decarbonise heavy-duty vehicles, change the nature of mass public or freight transport, retrofit existing buildings or reduce deforestation. Meanwhile, Australia had one of the highest shares of fossil fuel use per capita, emissions three times the G20 average and ranked highly for vulnerability to climate risk. And lastly, the findings of a long and secretive uh, secretive probe into allegations of war crimes amongst Australia's elite military unit, while they were in, in, in Afghanistan, will be made public today. The spotlight will be shone on the Australian Special Forces, revealing at least in part war crimes that were committed during multiple deployments to Afghanistan from 2006 to 2016. 
The revelations are expected to be sobering. Among other things, the report is expected to detail bloodings, initiation games where junior soldiers were encouraged to execute innocent civilians, Another incident involves an Australian Special Forces soldier allegedly shooting an unarmed Afghan man, lying on his back with his hands up. The 2012 killing in Uganzan province was captured on another soldier's helmet camera and later broadcast on the ABC's Four Corners program. The report is a culmination of four years of investigation, launched by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force in 2016. A special investigator is to be appointed to examine criminal matters outlined in the report, to gather evidence and, where appropriate, refer briefs to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. And that's all the news for the 19th of November. Yeah, I think definitely something to be aware of. And I think um, also something that I've found really interesting when I've seen a lot of reporting, especially around the ADF, and sorry to keep harping on about this, is there's always reference to how uh, veterans need to, uh, like at the end of articles, uh, you know, if you're a veteran that is uh, distressed by this news, here's numbers that you can call. But as I've seen, um, a lot of Arab Twitter has been bringing up the fact that, you know, there's no there's no discussion of the distress that, um, for example, the um, Afghan community in Australia might feel about finding out about this information. So, yeah, I think really, you know, make sure that you make time to take care of yourself, um, speak with people that you care about. Um, and, yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of information to process, but definitely something to be aware of, and especially for those of us who are not members of the Afghan community to stand in solidarity with that. Um, it's also this week, um, Transgender Week of Awareness. I don't know. Hi, I'm trans. Um, <laughs> if you're not aware. <laughs> if you didn't know, now you know. Um, yeah, I think that's, a, that's an interesting one. We were talking a, a bit earlier on about the value of, of commemorations and, and what this means in terms of, you know, tangible changes in places like the workplace. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion from, you know, a lot of trans colleagues being like, well, I don't know if, if we're seeing um, the sort of truth telling match the match the changes in the workplace. So it's a reminder uh, not not uh, to say uh if you if you know a trans person, go give them a pat on the back. But more, if you know uh, a trans person or if you don't, uh, maybe consider how you can change your own behaviors and figure out how to make some structural changes in your working environment, in your teaching and learning environments, um, you know, where you volunteer to make sure that it's safer for trans and gender diverse people to be around. You know, you don't have to go out of your way to uh, bother somebody about their gender identity, but just to, you know, do all those things that, that signal that this is a safe environment. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 9419 8377. 3CR ensures that our voices 
Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And today I'm joined by Karen Wilde, who lives in South Australia, but her grandmother's country, Matu, is in Western Australia's Pilbara. She's a freelance writer, author and consultant. And today she joins 3CR Thursday morning breakfast to talk about her new book, Where the Fruit Falls. Welcome, Karen. Oh, hi. So... First, for listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and a bit more about this book? Well, the book um, just recently came out, uh, late September. Um, I started working on it, though, in 2012. It was the winner of this year's Dorothy Hugh Award, so it was published as part of um, winning that award. It spans four generations, and it's set in rural, remote and urban Australia. It focuses on a big range of eras, but mainly in the 60s and 70s. And I chose to focus in that area because it was a time of social change and there was quite a lot of small political wins for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in that era. Um, the protagonist of Bridget Jed Devlin, who's a young Aboriginal woman, and her twin daughters, Victoria and Maggie. And the key themes include belonging, stolen generations, injustice, Aboriginal rights movement, and it's also a reimagining of the Australian saga and the road trip novel. And can you tell us more about the title of the book, Where the Fruit Falls? Okay, so uh, when I'm uh, writing a story, I, I don't plot. Um, I generally come with one image that I get, either you know just by driving, walking, dreaming. Um, in this, and then I wrap a story around it. In this instance, um, around about 2012, I was, um, it was an era that I was doing a lot of paintings. I was painting at the same time as listening to Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit. And through that song, uh, I started thinking about racism, violence, and justice, uh, which then became part of the painting. And I thought about, like, you know, often Australians will know very much what happened in the civil rights movement and before that in America, but even less here. So I wanted to sort of like uh, take some of the feelings in that song and then put them into an Australian context and highlight the settled colonialism and some of the violence here. Yeah, the mm. retelling history. Mm. And... Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that history that you really wanted to explore and reflect on in your book? Well, I pack a lot in there. Like, there's yeah. references to both world wars. There's there's the post World War Two, World War One pandemic. There's atomic testing, the moonwalk, civil rights movement, the land rights movement here, referendum, and the um, gaining of the vote. So there's a lot in there, a lot of history in there, but the history isn't the focus, like the history is in the background and and the themes come out through the, this woman and her daughter's journey through through Australia mm. and the people they meet and the things that happen to them along the way. Yeah, yeah. 
And, yeah, as you mentioned, it is such an incredible story. And um, Bridget and her twin daughters, Maggie and Victoria, they just meet so many different people and they share a lot of stories. And I can Uh see the ways in which um, you do try and interweave their stories, um, the stories that a lot of First Nations peoples, um, you know, have and want to express, as well as Uh stories of uh, migrant settlers. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about maybe um, the connection and the friendship between Bethel, um, who was one of your characters in the book, who migrated to so-called Australia, and the main character in this book, Bridget? Mm. And that part of the book, it's probably the first time Bridget has stopped moving and and has settled down for a while and formed relationships with with people that aren't mobs. So it's it, you know it's a different a different conversation that happens at that part. Um, I think Bethel Bethel takes on a motherly role to Bridget, and she's like an older aunt to Bridget's daughters. Um, so, I mean, they, they easily get welcomed into that household. And I think Bridget and Bethel's connections are probably based on an understanding that they both have paths that they hold close and they don't necessarily readily share, even though they start sharing a bit. And I think, you know, silence can be healing sometimes. Sometimes we're not ready to share things or we haven't met the right people to share things with. So I see I see that between those two. I actually think the stronger relationship in that part of the story is between Bridget and Omar, mm-hmm. who's Bethel's partner. Um, and they both they both were part of the diaspora after World War Two. And I think like you know he re- he really respects Bridget's silence, but he also gently encourages her to come out of the shell, just like he did when he first met Bridget. I mean Bethel. So he has this really gentle way about him of like pushing but also you know all the respect yeah and uh, yeah there's other countless um, themes and topics that you also explore throughout the book mm-hmm. um, and one of the most prominent ones um, for me when I was reading the book was around just the absolute racist history um, of Australia that's also continuing, um, and mm. yeah, the continual dispossession of yeah land and culture for Aboriginal people. Mm. Can you talk about some of the aspects of racism that you wanted to convey in your story? Well, I think in the story we have all the examples of systemic uh, racism that are fairly much linked to different um, policy eras in Australia, such as uh, assimilation, segregation, and then um, stolen generations um, plays a large role in that. And, and that's something that keeps Bridget on the road and keeps her very protective of her daughters and, and stops her really from connecting. Even though she wasn't stolen, uh, her, her, her story is different. Um, but there's, there's always that in the background. There's always that threat in the background that you know, um, someone wants to hold power after over her or her daughters when they're older, you know, teenagers. That that you know the state or the church will come in and get them on the basis that they're mixed heritage. And um, so I wanted to show, I wanted to show like um, 
you know, one of one of the many stories of stolen generations through that. Like there are other kids and characters throughout the book whose family did have stolen generation histories in their family and and the fractures that they they caused. You know, um, whether that's getting into the incarceration system or or just being wandering because they've got no connection that that they've been able to find yet. So so there's a lot of characters in there like that. Um, but I wanted to show too that it it wasn't it wasn't because of anything that parents or the children did. It was, you know, blatantly a form of of genocide that's been defined under United Nations Genocide Convention that the mass removal of children based on race, culture, or any other factors is a form of of genocide. And the goal of taking those children in the area that I was writing about was still very much about indoctrination, assimilation, uh, training the children to, into servitude, and and at its very basics, that's eugenics. And of course, we still got being removed, but the 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 government interventions that cause these disruptions are coming from a different place, still racial based, but a different place. So there was all those sort of things there, but um, there's also the microaggressions that are in there, the, the more subtle forms of racism, um, because it's not all about the big, the big systemic racism. So there's a lot of characters in there where just these little microaggressions they do, and they they do tend to be white women characters, mm. um, have drastic, drastically changed Bridget or her daughter's um, life path. And cause a lot of damage just from really small microaggressions. So I wanted to sort of highlight that a little bit more too. Yeah, and uh, I mean I think that is something that we still see um, because it's not just yeah the police or the state surveilling and policing people. Mm. It's also as we've seen throughout COVID, it's yeah well-meaning white people in our communities and in our neighbourhoods that won't hesitate to ever contact the police or child protection services if they um, see an argument or, yeah, see some conflict arising. So I think that's, um, yeah, it's, that's, those, some, those are some really important parts um, of the book where Bridget and her family are, you know, just trying to catch a bus to the next town, but it's um, some other people that are on the bus that have a qualm with her and her children. Mm. But I mean that that's still the era where segregation was still very much the go. Um, so so it's entirely different. I mean, we of course there's issues now, but those issues there were different. Um, I mean, I I can even remember in the early '80s segregated bars, segregated hotels. Like you know, would have to drink in the tiny little side room of a hotel. And not go into the main card and see that it was about seven years ago. I went back to one of those hotels and this elder was opening up the front door and it's like, come on, let's go have a drink. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I just, it, it just blew me away that we were walking in the front door and not this little side door. Um, so yeah, to- totally different era. Mm. Yeah. It's not all about these difficult things that happen. I didn't want that to be the focus. And what you probably notice is that I really didn't didn't use uh, sacred churches violence towards Aboriginal women. I didn't 
want to do any trauma like that. Um, so the story was told more subtly in those ways. But I also really wanted to highlight the strengths within First Nations communities, like, you know, right back in those land rights and justice movements, the early days there in the 60s and 70s and even in the 50s, gaining the vote, getting access to wage wages and also choosing who to love and, who, you know, maintaining connections because, you know, there was still in that era a government very much, well, a little bit before that government was still uh, making decisions on the, on who you could partner up with and have children with and they would intervene if, if you didn't do what they wanted you to do. But I wanted to show tenderness as well and that intergenerational trauma that's caused by colonisation is, is, is healed through community identity and belonging. So I didn't want it just to be a sad story at all. I wanted joy and strength and tenderness in there. Mm, absolutely. And, I mean, just the um, just the story with Bridget and her two daughters, you just see the strength of family and connection and how oh. even when they're travelling... Um, they come across her partners and the, the children's fathers, um, aunties. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, and it was just a natural connection. Even though she, she may have rejected and kept walking, there was still a connection there for sure. Um, and also I wanted to sort of like show the diversity of Mob. Like, um, I mean, as you, can, you, you notice the twins didn't look the same and so a lot of that was how how do they how do they internalize that difference but also how the world treats them differently too based on colorism Mm. yeah 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 very important um discussions to still be had today about that well i think those discussions are, are really really Stepping up now, like in a in a way that they haven't been had in the past, and that's being led by a lot of young ones. But you know, they're important discussions to have. Mm. And lastly, Karen, where can our listeners Mm -hmm. um, purchase this book and also find out a bit more about your writing? Well, it should be in most bookshops now. Um, If it's not, ask. can buy directly from the publisher, which is University of Western Australia Publishing. And with ebooks, I really recommend that people buy ebooks direct from the publisher, which is really rare. Publishers don't usually offer that because there's a lot more of ethical choice. I, I, I would rather no money goes to trillionaires like you know Amazon that don't have good social, economical, environmental. You know, reputation. So mm. buy ebooks direct from the publisher. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Well, thanks for having me. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, 8:55 a.m. And just then, you heard a conversation that I had with Karen Wilde about her newly published book, Where the Fruit Falls. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. 
and we're back. So um, I'm about to go to an interview with Professor Libby Porter, who is at the Center for Urban Research, RMIT University, and is the convener for Darabin Community Friends of Public Housing, which is a member of the Save Public Housing Collective, to discuss the Andrews government's announcement of the big housing build, which is an investment in social housing, and to sort of unpack what that really means. So hi, Libby. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Good morning. So would you mind um, briefly self-introducing yourself and um, talking about the the Save Public Housing Collective? Sure. Uh, The collective is uh, a group of uh, organisations and people that are passionate about the importance of public housing for uh, a a just and fair housing system. Uh, Many of our group are public housing tenants themselves um, and includes a lot of uh, activists who've been involved in the public housing space for a very long time asking for uh, greater investment and um, cherishing, really, of of public housing as a really important part of a fair housing system. Uh, My my own role is um, more really as a researcher uh, in the space of of housing and land justice, Um, and I work, as you said, at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT, and I I teach um, at the the university as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So... For people that aren't aware uh, of the Andrews government's announcement for the big housing build, um, what is the big housing build? What does it promise? And um, what does you know social housing really mean in that context? Yeah, uh, great question. So it, it promises. Um, it looks like it promises quite a lot. Uh, so if we if we look at the uh, the document that um, the government has released. It's saying it's promising uh, over 12,000 new homes, uh, which uh, would be broken up into about 9,300 would be social housing homes and 2,900 under the, um, in inverted commas, affordable uh, category, uh, with an investment of about $5.3 billion. And that covers a a range of different things, including uh, new homes on public land, um, some spot purchases, by government of existing private dwellings, uh, a lot more money channeled through what's called the Social Housing Growth Fund uh, and a set of partnerships um, on government land to deliver uh, social housing as well. Uh, There's also refurbishment of existing social housing properties and a whole new government agency called Homes Victoria. So that's what the, the glossy brochure tells us. Um, the, to unpack that a little bit, uh, if, if that's of interest um, to, to, to you and your listeners, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it's, it's really important to understand kind of what's going on underneath all that because it sounds marvellous. Um, and, of course, we want to uh, welcome investment in social housing and, and welcome the recognition uh, that housing in Victoria is a huge issue for many people uh, who are experiencing housing stress, uh, who are experiencing homelessness, uh, who are in situations uh, that just aren't sustainable um, for their lives. They can't live their lives properly because um, they aren't adequately housed, basically. So it's great to have recognition of this, um, but there are some problems. So one of the key problems is that all of the newly built social housing, all 9,300 dwellings um, that are in this uh, announcement, will be in community housing uh, and not in public housing. And we can unpack a little bit more uh, what the difference is uh, in a moment. But the other thing perhaps to note is that a lot of the... um, uh, places where the, the new housing will be built, um, particularly on what um, government's calling its fast start sites, are all public land, but are actually all formally public housing land. They are all sites where public housing has been or is currently being demolished 
to make way for community housing. So they were already places where there was public housing. Um, and, of course, there's a little bit of tricky accounting going on here uh, where none of the loss of those uh, dwellings is actually being counted as part of the kind of overall package. Uh, so it's been kind of hidden uh, underneath this larger announcement, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are some really important concerns in there around, you know, the sort of loss of existing public housing stock that we've seen over the past decades um, mm. and, and the fact that, um, you know, the transition uh, here from public housing or, or you know, uh, secure public housing to uh, increased investment in community housing um, marks also a sort of shift towards, you know, privatization and the third sector encroachment on, you know, the availability of, you know, what should be a social good, public housing. Um, so exactly. it would be, yeah, it would be really great to unpack some of that difference between community and public housing because I'm aware that there are differences, you know, in the nature of ownership, in the nature and the nature of the amount that's paid um, yeah. by tenants. So, yeah. Exactly right. Um, so there's some quite, it is really important to distinguish between community housing and public housing. Um, and what often happens and it has exactly happened um, in this announcement is that they get kind of wrapped up together under this uh, uh, term social housing, which is a term that's widely used, um, particularly, you know, myself as a, as a housing researcher, we use this term all the time, um, particularly when we're talking, you know, more globally, uh, because you want to capture all of the sort of, if you like, non-market forms of housing. And, and we do that by using the term social housing. But in the way that it's being used um, at the moment, in our, I guess, public conversations in Victoria and Australia um, about the importance of uh, non-market forms of housing, it gets a little bit slippery because what's actually happening is it's, it's hiding um, a privatisation of public housing. So using that term social housing is tending to uh, sort of obscure this, as you say, quite aggressive move towards um, community housing away from public housing. So there are some very important differences uh, in the rights and conditions um, of public housing tenants compared with community housing tenants. The first important difference is that public housing rents are capped at 25% of a household's income and in community housing, if you're a tenant in community housing, that's capped at 30%. Um, of your income. Maybe to someone who's on a, on a, a good income and is, is securely housed, that doesn't sound very much. Um, but actually 30% of housing income spent on, on your housing is where housing stress begins. So the people who are paying 30% of their income in community housing tenancies are already in housing stress. Uh, and, and so that seems to be the antithesis of what a proper uh, and well thought through uh, social housing system does, which is to support people to not be in, in housing stress. The yeah. other important thing is that um, community housing organisations don't operate under the same policies and performance standards as, as the departments, right? And so they, even though we're drawing from the same combined Victoria ha Housing Register, um, they, they're not governed by the same kinds of uh, uh, sort of policy standards e effectively. And there's been some really good work done. Um, so, you know, shout out here to colleagues at the Inner Melbourne Legal Centre um, who've been doing some really important work around these differences and how that works really on the ground. And, it, it's hard to see, for, um, but you have to kind of get uh, in, inside um, some specific cases to understand where these really uh, important differences in rights actually exist. So, for example, um, the community housing sector isn't as obviously governed or answerable to the Victorian Charter of Human Rights as um, the DHHS is. 
and it is much harder to find community housing uh, organisation policies and procedures where they are found, able to be found. Um, they're, they're often vague and cursory. They contain much fewer rights protections for tenants. Um, so while they're, you know, CHOs, community housing organisations are not for profit, they're still private organisations, they're increasingly corporatised and they're not held to the same uh, kinds of levels of accountability um, and, and performance standards as we do in public housing. So, you know, this is really important for people to understand that this really is a privatisation of public housing um, and, and to be aware of what that actually means. Yeah, I think um, I think that's really important to make that distinction because, um, you know, we kind of want to find out which one sort of wins out in this big housing build and how this is going to affect, um, you know, how this is going to yeah. affect public housing tenants now, but also people in the Victorian Housing Register at the moment. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, who it benefits now is, is um, community housing providers. Uh, and I must say, it's also looking like we're, we're still doing a whole bunch of analysis on the announcement to the extent that we can, given that it's a bit vague in places and are asking for more clarification of, of the, um, the moving parts that sit underneath it. But our analysis um, at this point really strongly shows that this is a windfall for developers and community housing organisations um, because of the way in which uh, public land will be used to allow developers and community housing organisations to increase their, their housing portfolios, basically their property portfolios. Mm. Um, but there won't be an appreciable dent in the wait list um, and the unmet housing need. Um, so it's a pretty terrible return on investment for, for Victorian people, actually, and particularly for people um, on the Victorian Housing Register. You know, those are the people who put their hand up and said, I'm in housing stress and I really need um, some help. Um, pe people languish on that wait list for 20 years and, and more um, and, and will never uh, receive public housing because we don't invest properly in, in public housing. But if we look at, should we look at public housing need just for a moment, um, Priya, because I mm. think that's an important question. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The public, ha public housing need in Victoria is at record levels. Um, some analysis done by a, co a colleague of mine in the Safe Public Housing Collective, um, Duncan Rash, has found that there are around 100,000 people on the housing register, about 30,000 of whom are children. Um, now, of course, not everyone who needs public housing is on the waiting list. Um, there's tens of thousands more people who are in housing stress or inadequately housed in other parts of the housing system. They're just not kind of um, visible, um, ha having put their hand up and, and said that they want to be on the, on the housing register, on the wait list. Um, so if you think about it, the big housing build is promising 9,300 homes for uh, 100,000 people on the housing register. Uh, now, we don't know things like bedroom configurations and size of dwellings, but we can make some assumptions. We think that that might house around 23,000 people, um, so it's not quite a quarter of the people on the waiting list, but it will actually be less than that because community housing organisations aren't required to allocate all of their properties to people on the wait list. Mm. Um, so actually, the accommodation being provided in this $5.3 billion worth of investment will be quite small um, in terms of its impact on the people people who are, are expressing really serious housing need yeah. right at this moment. Uh, so it, it's really concerning um, that it is not delivering really what it says. Yeah, definitely. And I know that there's also, you know, concerns around the sort of density of housing as well. Um, you know, the, the demolition of uh, 
public housing, which, you know, can can house larger families and the transition towards one and two bedroom places as well, um, which is obviously going to affect certain types of communities um, hardest. So thinking about public housing exactly. demographics and the sort of this aggressive shift towards community housing and privatization, um, how do you think this is going to affect uh, particular communities uh, differentially? And also, um, what do you see for the future? Yeah, um, it, it's it's hard to tell at the moment, but um, what we we do know, just because we know how <laughs> we all know how this works out, um, these kinds of things uh, for uh, people who are um, in the crosshairs, if you like, of, of vectors of, of of racial and social injustice, they're always the people who are burdened the most. So, you know, people experiencing um, income disadvantage, um, experiencing poverty, experiencing homelessness, domestic violence, um, people marked by racial injustice and colonial injustice, but they are always the people who bear these kinds of burdens the most. Um, so I think it's you know, reasonable to say that we, we can assume that those are the people who are going to be disadvantaged the most by a system that isn't actually supporting uh, appropriate and adequate housing solutions to a, to a major problem. Um, as you say, things like bedroom sizes and, or, or bedroom numbers in dwellings really, really matters, and we've seen this in the public housing renewal program um, with the replacement of really good, you know, three and four bedroom um, homes uh, with one and two bedroom homes that just don't suit uh, the, the large numbers of people who are on the waiting list with um, perhaps complex family needs or just you know lots of kids or um, lots of people needing to move in and out in, in different kinds of family arrangements um, makes all these assumptions about kind of what a, a proper family looks like or what a proper household looks like that doesn't uh, at all really relate to the realities of, of um, what people actually need um, and can be deeply unjust um, in, in those contexts. Uh, so it's really concerning that those people won't be properly supported and that we will in fact lose uh, a huge amount of, of really good public housing that just needed some refurbishment and some love and attention um, to uh, a, a privatised model um, of smaller, more dense um, sort of apartment type situations um, that won't be suitable for a whole range of people uh, currently expressing their housing need. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that's um, you know a, a really terrible outcome. As I say, it's a really poor investment um, that Victoria is receiving from this. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know this this leads me to my final question, which is. Um, how can we push for you know more public housing investment? How can we sort of try and hold this big build accountable? And where can people find out a bit more about the Safe Public Housing Collective? Yeah, great. Um, everyone should get interested in public housing. I think because... Um we have such a small percentage in Victoria and indeed in Australia of public housing as a part of, you know, the sort of, you know, I hate using the term housing system, but that's what it is, I suppose. Um, as part of our housing stock, you know, it's a tiny, tiny percentage. Um, currently around 3% or just less than 3%, the actual percentage of public housing um, in, in Victoria's housing stock. And I think for the vast majority of Victorians, we forget how important public housing is to the to a fair and just housing system. If you like, it's the commitment we make to each other in a society that to be securely and safely housed is a right. It's not a wealth creation activity. It's not a commodity. It is each of our rights to have 
um, that we can be safely and securely housed. And it's our statement to each other that we really believe in that and that, and that that's a value that we mm. hold um, really importantly. So if, if, you know, listeners out there, if that's your value system, that you don't want to see people um, affected by um, housing injustice in this way, um, mm. then please do get involved. Um, you can certainly join up to... There's many... Um, uh, groups that are uh, involved in, in, in championing the cause of public housing mm-hmm. um, and, and many of those groups are involved in the Safe Public Housing Collective so you can find us at safepublichousing.com and of course we're on various social media platforms um, that you can find us on too so please get involved and make your voice heard um, we're always looking for, for passionate people who can help out uh, with the activities of, of this uh, of this cause um, and of course you know, write to Minister Wynne, write to Premier Andrews your local member, ask questions um, when you hear the term social housing or community housing, mm. uh, ask for more detail, dig a little deeper because there's a bigger story um, sitting underneath that that I think we're being, uh, the wool's being pulled over our eyes a little bit um, and, and we need to kind of wake up and, and really hear what's going on there um, to, yeah. to produce a, a better housing outcome for, for everybody. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me, Libby. Um, I really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having this important conversation on your program.
That was Leftovers by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, and you're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Now, just before that, you heard an interview with Professor Libby Porter at the Center for Urban Research, RMIT University, and a convener for Darabin Community Friends of Public Housing, which is a member of the Safe Public Housing Collective. Libby joined us to discuss the Andrews government's announcement of investment in social housing and what this actually means for people on the public housing waiting list. West Papua has been the site of an independence struggle for several decades, and West Papuans have long fought for independence from Indonesia, which has repeatedly violated human rights, including widespread violence, mass arrests, killings, amounting to the death of more than 500,000 people. So human rights defender and activist Adolf Mora joins us today to speak more about the situation in West Papua. Good morning, Adolf. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Adolf Mora. Again, I'm, I'm an activist uh, from West Papua, and I did come across with a group of uh, 43 people on the boat. Uh, in 2006, uh, I was a student at the university and uh, with the country. Uh, I couldn't stay and study at the um, university. And just because me and friends, we did a lot of uh, rally uh, very much, uh, criticized governments for the uh, social justice and human rights in West Papua. Um, from there, uh, yeah, I was Escape because of the uh, Indonesian uh, intelligence military uh, not happy and looking for us as a boarding house. Uh, yeah. Um, I did my way to come to Australia. Yeah. Was, yeah. Um, and so three weeks ago, Indonesian troops opened fire on a group of students in West Papua. Um, and on Monday, you organized a protest outside the AFP offices in Melbourne or NAM. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what is going on in West Papua at the moment? Yes, yes, uh, exactly right. Um, incidents and uh, silent genocide um, things still happen from day one since they, um Indonesian take a, uh, yeah Indonesian government take a place in West Papua since uh, 1962 even until today. Uh, the Dutch Dutch colony. Um, Indonesian 
governments for mining in, in West Papua. They've done a lot of um, um, problems back in West Papua, especially with uh, uh, silent genocide. And also, since then, Indonesia used the military power very much. And last, um, as we had the last three weeks, and even until yesterday, uh, we still heard the uh, incident happening with Papua. But also, Monday, we did the um, first ever rally after the uh, lockdown in, in Melbourne, especially. So we did at the front of uh, AP. Um, our our attention to AP is so far AP has uh, working closely with Indonesian uh, police, especially the detachment eight special force and Brimob in in West Papua. Um, AP did their best to train uh, military. They accommodating here in Australia, so they had some selected area in Darwin and there uh, train all these military. And when these uh, troops went back to Indonesia, they used used them, sent them straight away into the field in in West Papua, and they used this uh, training exercise in in West Papua. Uh, they killed so many people, even a uh, baby, a baby only. Um, one day old just came out from mom's um, tummy and suddenly dead. So it's terrifying for the mom and specialist for the um, our sister and also the woman in the Papua itself. Um, they a lot of women uh, left behind in the village with um, army, specialists in the army. Um, Bring up. They did a um, work in the field. They they raped so many women, and a kid growing up in the field with no father has a lot of mix. Has a lot of mixture in the face. That um, yeah, they with one woman give birth to um, a child with a lot of mixtures. That doesn't mean doesn't. Um, Mixed to uh, indigenous, so it's a lot of it, it less the uh, terrifying that women has 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 losing a lot that lost the hopes and also with the kids and with the man itself as well in the village that's been been treated treated by the military as a separatist so. Most of people in the village that they don't recognize by the authority uh, more likely can be called um, as a separatist. And they can get shot anytime, uh, just even, uh, even a second. So it, it's really crazy, and especially the life uh, people out. The lifestyle they call me it's a fishing and uh, gardening, farming, and stuff. Um, our life, traditional way, we go to the farm, to the gardening. We take our uh, wool, we take our 
lives, just to cut the trees and cut, cut, cut it down, say, like mowing and, and things like that. So the Indonesian military used that as an excuse in the village. Anyone walking around with a weapon, anyone walking around with a knife, just go to the uh, small baker at the back. Uh, you can get shot any time. Um, out in the baker, they sit there overnight. So it's, it's really scary. Um, people look at, looking at the West Papua and they only think in capital city that uh, some of the um, town, bigger town, uh, people think it's safe, but it's not. Um, even, even until yesterday, um, still there's incidents. Uh, people still get shot in the field. But also, to see that, um, uh, it's a lot of rain, um, mining, um, infested in there as well. So mm. it creates a lot of, um, security power. Um, in, in the Papua land itself, uh, has a 50 mining, uh, foreign mining that's been running in the Papua. And everyone's put their interest in there. So for sure, they, they have no problem to pay, pay the biggest, uh, security to look mm. after the money. And for us, the indigenous people, uh, in the land, um, slowly, slowly, we just been, uh, kick out from our land, and the landowner uh, specialists have no right to argue with the local authority. Um, everyone who wants to argue with the authority has to face the uh, military power. Mm. And um, as, yeah, the the. In 2006, the Lombok Treaty, uh, with the, signed with the Australian Howard government, uh, meant that, um, Australia agreed to stay out of local Indonesian affairs. So I guess, could you speak more about what's Australia's role in the genocide in West Papua? Uh, yes, that's really interesting. I think, um, look, the Lombok Treaty 2006, uh, it came out not not long after me and my friends, we arrived at the boat. Uh, we arrived at the boat uh, in January. And, yeah, a few months later, they came up with their treaty. So we just, it's really shameful, to be honest, really shameful for Indonesia and uh, the Australian government itself to do that. Um, they try to very much minimize the activist uh, groups and uh, human rights um, uh, uh, supporter in this Papua. Specialist, uh, Lombard Treaty has um, minimized uh, a lot of uh, things for us that they think they can control uh, uh, and reduce their impact that we're going to bring it out from West Papua. So with the Australian role, role in, in Lombard Treaty, I think it's a shame that um, Australia itself support support the, uh, Indonesia to continue um, respect the Indonesia sovereignty uh, against West Papua. But also I think the Australian government don't understand uh, here in, in Australia, the indigenous asking the same things, and they don't do that. Um, this is ridiculous. It's a shame on, on our government. Mm. 
um, to support the um, human rights uh, violation in West Papua, which is they continue allowing um, AFP um, to work closely with Indonesia, not not in uh, border security, but they're looking into it. Uh, um, behind that, uh, they look into protect a lot of uh, oil uh, mining in in West Papua. That's what one of the um, effects we see came out from uh, Lombok Treaty. To be honest, with Lombok Treaty, it's, um, it's just create another way and uh, worse. Uh, it's, it's worse in, in West Papua that um, international cannot uh, intervene, mm. uh, intervene in, in Indonesia um, for West Papua um, human rights. For example, um, with the human rights organizations trying to step in there, with the journalists, um, a group of journalists as well. Uh, they cannot do that because, yeah, this is really, really um, great deal that Australia helped Indonesia for Lombok Treaty and has minimized uh, our work very much to, to tell the world. Mm. But through, through the uh, Lombok Treaty has, has given us um, a lot of strength that we, we're not going to be let it out, but it is really challenge us to make a standing strong um, fight, fight for the uh, human rights mm-hmm. in, in West Papua and especially in the, um, Indonesia all across. And don't forget, in the system in Indonesia uh, is running by military power and also almost, almost similar to every um, powerful nation. Specialists like in America and some of the European countries that have been run by military. Yeah. So and be, be behind them as well, the CIA is working. Um, I, don't, I don't think I should um, yeah, tell all this, but it's behind them. It's, it's the power, the power of the uh, capitalism. And yes. Exactly, and Adolf, I'm so sorry, but we're, we're running out of time. But could you quickly, uh, so for listeners who want to find out more, support West Papua, how can they do so? Uh, yes, that's a great thing. Um, we have the West Papua Facebook uh, campaign page. Um, you can come up there and introduce yourself if you want to um, get involved. And we should have some projects running that. We need a lot of people to be involved, but also with your local uh, politicians, uh, your local council, uh, please do write the letters to them to, uh, to watch the human rights over in West Papua. Great. Adolf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That was Adolf Morrow, who is a human rights uh, advocate for West Papua. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 855am. And up next, we're joined by Dr Fiona Foley. Dr. Fiona Foley is from the Wandana clan of the Butchula Nation. 
she completed her fourth film titled Out of the Sea Light Cloud in 2019. Her recent exhibitions include a 25-year photographic retrospective titled Who Are These Strangers and Where Are They Going? Dr Fiona Foley is currently a lecturer at the Queensland College of Art, Griffith University, and she joins us on the show to speak about her new book, Biting the Clouds, a butchula perspective on the Aboriginals' protection and restriction of the Sale of Opium Act, 1897. Welcome, Dr Fiona Foley. Thank you for joining us on 3CR. Thank you for having me on the show. So your um, work, especially um, your artwork, has centred around the Aboriginals' protection and restriction of sale of Opium Act, 1897, um, for over a decade. What has publishing this book meant to you? Publishing the book means that I can reach a much wider audience uh, outside of making, you know, public art or having exhibitions. So it means that, you know, people can understand this history more in a chronological order than through a visual sensory uh, space that they might inhabit through going to a gallery or a um, library where a public art commission is. Mm. And, I mean, um, like your work in the State Library in Queensland, um, just, like, I remember walking into the State Library and then seeing your artwork that was um, black opium and, yeah, just... I mean, I'm really um, interested, especially in this topic, because my family is Wangyi and Chinese, and you do talk a bit right. about this um, in yeah, Biting the Clouds and also explore in your work as well, because the Aboriginals' Protection and Restriction of Sale of Opium Act um, targeted both the Aboriginal and Chinese communities in Queensland. Right. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, the events that led up to the Act, um, yeah, coming into fruition in 1897, and then maybe we'll talk a bit more about how this act um, did target both the Chinese and Aboriginal community. Well, most people in Australia today, and particularly Queenslanders, wouldn't know for a start, I think, that opium was legal in the state of uh, Queensland and that the legislation that was introduced in 1897 uh, made smoking opium illegal but there were predominantly three races that were involved with the um, licensing of opium and the distribution. So the state government had a hand in issuing licences right across um, its terrain. So many people were partaking in selling opium uh, from Europeans and Chinese, and each racial group was involved in a different capacity. So usually the Chinese would come to Queensland and they first came to Queensland in 1848 uh, without their women. And usually there would be an alliance or a union between a Chinese male and Aboriginal female and they would, uh, you know, have a common marriage and have children from that marriage. And the Europeans were very fearful of this alliance between Chinese and Aboriginals, and which was unfounded, so that they amended the legislation in 1901 and made it illegal for Chinese and Aboriginals to marry in the state. So there were many um, ramifications based on this race policy that affected people differently. So what was happening for the 
Aboriginal people, the opium had already been smoked and they were being given opium ash or charcoal opium and they would uh, mix that ash with water and drink that and they would still get a high from the um, from the opium ash and um, they were being given that in lieu or payment for their labour on, you know, cattle stations or in the fishing industry and various types of work that was happening, hard labour in Queensland. Mm. Yeah, in your book you say that for many employers after 1897... um, Sorry, narcotic dependency was a far cheaper means of keeping a regular Aboriginal workforce. Yeah, so they addicted a a large Aboriginal workforce that was common practice and, uh, you know, there was no morality about it. It's just that's what they were doing. And so the legislation came in because Archibald Meston um, was agitating the state government uh, for... A period of 10 years, there were a lot of uh, Aboriginal deaths. He, he's quoted as saying a thousand, um, and that they wanted to stop that and stamp out opium addiction in Queensland. Mm. But, but, you know, having said that, uh, the, the sale of opium continued on well into 1906. It just didn't automatically stop. And the legislation really was set up to make scapegoats of the Chinese who were selling opium. The only convictions were against Chinese, not against Europeans. So, you know, the the law was used um, against people who who were from different racial backgrounds. Mm. And I mean, there were so many ramifications for that act as well, like the removal. um, It was really about as... I mean, we still see today, and you do reference it in your book as well, like what's going on um, in the Northern Territory with the Northern Territory intervention. I mean, this legislation was all about the government having control over Aboriginal people and also Chinese people as well, and um, those interracial marriages, but especially in regards to Aboriginal people having control over where they lived um, and, yeah, like their connections to destroying yeah, really their connections to country. Definitely, I think the Northern Territory intervention was is based on, you know, the uh, Queensland legislation some 110 years prior. So, you know, I think history has a way of repeating itself. And it's just fascinating that, you know, the Northern Territory intervention um, also was a race-based uh, policy to gain access to 73 Aboriginal communities uh, and introduce new laws only against Aboriginal people. Mm. But, you know, Archibald Meston, the first protector of Aborigines in the south of Queensland, he was a believer of eugenics theories Mm. coming out of London. So all of this is predicated on uh, thought, you know, scientific thought, about race and the purity of race and the non-mixing of races. Mm. And so when he was protector, he made sure that there were no intermarriages between Aboriginals and Chinese or Aboriginals and Europeans. And the legislation really was about isolating Aboriginal people and controlling them Mm. and moving them 
removals were a big part of this mm. legislation. And it had devastating effects on Aboriginal families. Yeah, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, um, even through my family, um, I've seen that as well. And the most, like, I think the most important part, actually, of your book, though, is that it's from your bachelor perspective. Like, um, just all throughout the book, you are constantly coming back to, like, your story, your, you know, personal history. Can you talk about... Mm-hmm. Yeah, how it felt um, writing this writing this book. That honestly, I have never read such a book that continued to like ground the author and the writer in their own perspective about a state policy. Well, I guess as a child, I had a very inquiring mind. So for the Bachelor people, um, really, we our traditional country is also uh, Gari Fraser Island. But we weren't able to access the island when I was much younger and it took us 110 years um, to uh, gain native title back over that island. And so we would sit on the mainland and look across to the island and it's really a deprivation of longing and I wanted to understand why there were none of my bachelor people living on Fraser Island. I knew it was a part of our traditional country but no one was living there. So it's really, as a child, I had this these burning questions I would ask. And so none of that was um, ever um, acknowledged through my education in high school or six years tertiary study. And they were still questions I had as a young adult. And I could only resolve those questions through reading a, a series of books um, by prominent historians like Henry Reynolds, C.D. Rowley, Raymond Evans, uh, Rosalind Kidd, and so on. And But this is a slow process of 32 years of mapping the terrain of what really happened in Queensland. So none of, none of this was ever taught to me in an education environment, so largely I'm self-taught. But through reading these publications, I start to understand the complexity of this history and start to piece it together from my perspective as a bachelor person. And why that was so important is because the first experiment was set up on the western side of Gari, Fraser Island, at the Kimber Creek Mission to bring all of these opium-affected Aboriginals from across the state of Queensland and put them in this one location. So they ended up bringing about 19 different language groups across to the island, plus the Butchler people. And that was a really unhealthy environment because it was sedentary, the food was atrocious, and it was also on a mangrove where there were a lot of mosquitoes and sandflies. So people would pick up... Um, mosquito-borne diseases. So what's fascinating for me is that none of this is taught in our education system and it was really important to write this history and also have it published so that other Queenslanders would understand what really went on in the state of Queensland instead of being so ignorant they can start now to be informed in a very um, condensed way, just through reading one publication instead of having to read 
many publications. Yeah, thank you so much um, from myself and my family for actually writing this book because, yeah, you're so right. I mean, I learnt so much um, about, yeah, the ramifications of the Aboriginals' protection and restriction of sale of Opium Act 1897, but also just some of the stories that you could never hear or like read anywhere else. Um, this is such important work. And on that note... Uh, where can listeners buy this book? They can go to the University of Queensland Press website and it's readily available there and they just have to click on the button um, Biting the Clouds and then uh, it will be sent to them in the post. Too easy. <laughs> Perfect. <Yeah. laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Fiona Foley, for joining us this morning to speak about your incredible um, book, Biting the Clouds. Thank you very much. And just then we had a conversation with Fiona Foley um, talking about her book, Biting the Clouds, a bachelor perspective on the Aboriginal's protection and restriction of the sale of Opium Act 1897. And we'll go straight into our next interview. So after three weeks of peaceful protests blockading the only road passage connecting West Africa to Western Sahara, Morocco and Europe, last Friday the Moroccan army crossed the dividing wall, the berm, and launched a campaign in what it said was an effort to secure the Gangarat border post and ensure the resumption of civil and commercial traffic. This was an end to the 29-year-old ceasefire between Morocco and the Polisario Front, the region's independence body and movement. And joining us today is Kamal Fadel, who serves as a representative for the Polisario in Australia and New Zealand. Good morning, Kamal, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank uh, you for having me. Um, could you provide, I, I guess before we, we talk more about uh, what's currently happening, could you provide a broader historical, geographical, I think is important as well, and political and economic uh, context for Western Sahara? Sure, thank you. Um, Western Sahara is the, in northwest Africa, um, south of Morocco, north of Mauritania, uh, on the Atlantic coast, uh, just opposite the Canary Islands. Um, it's a large territory, the size of Great Britain. It's very rich in mineral resources and uh, in fisheries. Uh, it was a Spanish colony from 1884 until 1975, uh, when uh, Spain was forced by the indigenous people of Western Sahara to uh, relinquish its colonialist claim over Western Sahara and and uh, and leave the territory as did uh, so many other European uh, nations in Africa. But instead of doing the right thing and uh, you know conducting the decolonization process in accordance with the United Nations and international law, um, it uh, handed the territory over to uh, Morocco and Mauritania. It divided it one half for Morocco and one half for Mauritania, and Spain uh, um, kept some economic interests in the phosphate mines and in the fisheries. Uh, of course, this was against the wishes uh, and aspirations of the people of West Sahara who had uh, in uh, years earlier uh, set up a, a movement, a liberation movement called the Polisario to demand their uh, independence. 
uh, and they found themselves, uh, you know, facing a, a new invasion, a new colonialism from the, the neighboring countries, and they had to defend themselves. Uh, and uh, so war continued until 1991, for 16 years, 1975 until 1991, um, against Morocco uh, and Mauritania, uh, which, in fact, in 1979 had signed a peace treaty with, with the Polisario and recognized the Sahara Republic, and withdrew from the part it, it occupied. But Morocco moved in and took that part, too. So the United Nations managed to uh, you know, uh, bring the parties together and agree to a settlement plan in, 19, uh, in 1989, 90, uh, which uh, provided for uh, a referendum of self-determination that it was going to be held uh, in 1992. And it sent a mission to the territory called Minoso. Uh, but soon realized that Morocco's uh, acceptance of the ceasefire and the settlement plan uh, was uh, not with goodwill, uh, and it wanted just to have the ceasefire and not go ahead towards the referendum. So it started putting obstructions, blocking it, and in recent years had said that there would be no referendum at all. Uh, so uh, United Nations was weak and effective uh, and really became like a tool in the hands of Morocco to just maintain a ceasefire uh, while Morocco is uh, cementing its occupation, it's, uh, you know, exploiting the resources of the territory and oppressing uh, the people of Western Sahara. Um, so this was, uh, became uh, unacceptable to the Sahrawi people and they uh, wanted to protest uh, this uh, inaction by the United Nations and also the, uh, um, the, the wrongdoings of Morocco. And they, that's why they went to this uh, area called Kergarat uh, to protest. Um, and I guess could you provide more details about what, what, what happened at the border post and the significance, I guess, um, of the end of the ceasefire? Sure. Let me just uh, clarify that when we uh, signed the peace, uh, you know, the, the ceasefire in 1991, there was uh, another agreement signed by, between the Polisario and Morocco under the United Nations auspices called Military Agreement Number 1, which was signed in 1997, which detailed how the troops of both parties should, uh, you know, move and, uh, uh, and the, how, how, where they see and what equipment they can use or what constructions or repar reparations or uh, renovation of buildings and roads and all, all of that. So... This crossing of Gergarat, which between the border of Western Sahara and Mauritania, was not in existence at that time. The parties agreed to crossings in the Berg, which were four, uh, where the United Nations can come through those crossings, or the, you know, uh, but Gergarat crossing was not one of them. So Morocco started this road in. 2001, 
And when they started it, we complained to the United Nations and we said that this is a violation of the terms of the ceasefire because the agreement number one, Article 3, states that there should be a buffer strip where it is prohibited for any military or any movement or any change of the, um, of the, of the status quo, you know, of the situation on the ground. And Gergarat is in that strip. It's a five-kilometer buffer strip. Uh, and we kept mentioning this to the United Nations, that this crossing is illegal, it's not acceptable, and we cannot tolerate it, and uh, it should be closed. Because this territory is a war zone, and the ceasefire is uh, fragile, and it has the terms have to be, have to be respected. Um, and, uh, so w- Morocco ignored uh, our calls, and the United Nations did nothing. And we also noticed that this road is being used to uh, further uh, by Morocco to. Uh, um, as I said earlier, cement its occupation and its presence in the territory uh, and send not only, you know, goods, but drugs, uh, and it is used by illegal immigration, uh, you know, trafficking of people, uh, and, um, and, and it's also sending goods and equipment to countries in West Africa for, for Morocco to influence them politically, uh, and it was really a clear violation of, of the terms of the ceasefire. And the Sahara people said, we cannot tolerate this anymore. So civilians and armed civilians who are allowed to be in that area went there and protested peacefully with flags, with you know banners, uh, women, children, uh, uh, the elderly. And they were just standing there and saying, this road has to be closed and uh, we cannot uh, allow this to happen anymore, and we want the United Nations to do something about it. But Morocco suddenly on Friday morning sent its army to uh, attack these civilians and to chase them out of that area and also occupy the buffer strip and start building a new berm in that prohibited area. So we said earlier that if Morocco did that, that would be a flagrant violation of the ceasefire, and our, our army would have to interfere, not only to protect the civilians uh, and defend them, but also uh, to uh, um, defend our territory, and, and that would be the end of the ceasefire. So that's what happened on, on Friday. This is a very serious situation, uh, and it's the beginning of a, a new war, the resumption of hostilities in Western Sahara, uh, and Morocco is responsible for this uh, situation because it sent its army, and as we speak, it's still there occupying new territory which was not under its control, and it's a, a, a clear violation of, of the ceasefire. Uh, unfortunately, the United Nations again has shown to us that it is ineffective, uh, and, and, and it has not even condemned Morocco's violation of the ceasefire, and they have not yet called on them to withdraw from this area uh, and go back to where they were before. Uh, so uh, now we are facing a, a new situation. We did not want to be in it. We wanted to give peace a chance. We have been very, very patient for 30 years of United Nations presence in Western Sahara, 
it's again another war imposed on us, like what happened in 1975, and our people have decided. It's a very popular uh, decision that they will now continue their armed struggle, their liberation struggle, uh, for the you know uh, liberation of their homeland uh, and for their dignity and liberty and freedom. Yeah, indeed, and there's been solidarity protests. Um uh, across the occupied Western Sahara in Spain and in New Zealand, uh, who buys phosphate from Morocco, phosphate taken from Western Sahara. Um, we've not much time left, but I guess um, could you brief, briefly speak about uh, why do you think this happened now? And uh, if listeners want to find out more, where can they go? Well, this has happened because the Western Sahara issue is a decolonization issue. It's on the United Nations uh, list as a non-self-governing territory. Morocco's occupation is not recognized by anyone, uh, and it has been occupied for 45 years. We also had a 30 years of United Nations efforts which went into, in vain because the UN capitulated to Morocco and became a tool in its hands. Uh, the international community ignored this issue, neglected it, and, and they did not reward the Sahrawis for their patience and their cooperation. So we find ourselves here in another conflict and another example of inaction by the international community, and they don't react until, you know, they see, they hear uh, the sound of guns or blood uh, or see blood. Uh, now the Secretary General of the United Nations is saying, oh, I want to cease fire. I, I, I want people to exercise their strength. But what did you do before? We had a and year and a half. I'm so sorry, Kamal. We have to stop it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll have to get you back on soon to speak more about this issue. Thank you. Thank you. Theresa, our breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.